This podcast is proudly brought to you by Adventure Professionals. www.adventureprofessionals.com.au Welcome to the Kokoda Track Podcast, hosted by former soldier Glenn Azar. This is the place to hear stories from those who've trekked Kokoda and gain tips and knowledge about what to expect on the track or to relive your own amazing experiences. The Kokoda Track Podcast, keeping the spirit of Kokoda alive. Okay, team, welcome back to the Kokoda Track Podcast. I am sitting with Lisa, who has just literally come off the Kokoda Track uh, less than a week ago, or this time last week. Again, if we were at a barbecue and... We didn't know each other, and someone had mentioned you'd just gone to Kokoda. How would you explain it to me? Um, it was amazing. It was everything I thought it would be challenge-wise, scenery, people, accomplishment, hardship. It was just awesome. It was the whole box and dice. So, um, obviously for those playing along at home, you're not Australian, you're a Kiwi. Yes. So you can pick that up in the accent. Don't hold it against me. Not at all. But this is the question, why... Did you decide to do Kokoda? Because obviously for Australians, it's got a lot of military history. It always interests me why other people go and do it. Yeah, well, I've done a lot of diving in the South Pacific and I've dived on a lot of World War One and World War Two wrecks. And I was in Papua New Guinea in 2002, I think it was, and I'm staying at a hotel where people had just come in fresh off the track. And that was the first time I'd ever heard of the Kokoda track. So, And it's kind of bounced around in my periphery for probably the last 10 years. And recently I started to do some trekking. And one of the people that I was trekking with, she'd been to Kokoda. So I started researching it and thought, this is, I absolutely want to go. I want to give it a crack. What did you know about it? Like, was it just from speaking to people? And did they, what did they tell you? Like, it's hard, military history. What, what bits did you know? Well, I had done a little bit of research on the military history. So that really um, piqued my interest. And then it was the terrain, the challenge just the whole experience and really even though I'm a Kiwi if during the war Australia had fallen New Zealand would have been next so it's very um, relevant for us as Kiwis that you know the Australian diggers got in there and did what they had to do because they saved the whole of the South Pacific. Yeah well interesting I'm going to Garari in a couple of weeks to talk about uh, to take some family members over from that battle and I was just going through the order of service and it talks about the Anzac spirit and how so obviously Australia and New Zealand have been linked for a long time mm. and I think from memory correct me if I'm wrong because you were just there at Bamana there were six New Zealanders buried I think at Bamana Warsampshire who were attached to Australia not just on Kokoda but through that whole campaign. Yeah I, I found one of the war graves for the Kiwis and I think he was in the Air Force um, so yeah there's I think there'll always be a synergy between Australians, New Zealand, the country, the people, the Anzacs, everything. So the next question is, what were you expecting on the track? And did anything surprise you once you actually got over on the track? What was I expecting? Well, I'm one of those people that sort of, I underpromise and overdeliver. So I expected it to be really tough and really hard. And when we went up Emmett Ridge, that's what I expected the whole trip to be like. So I'd done a lot of training and I wanted to be able to really immerse myself in the whole experience not just put one foot in front of the other so expectation wise I expected it to be tough and it was Um, but you know it's a matter of pushing yourself through putting one foot in front of the other and getting used to your new normal. So on Imida for those people 
listening who have actually been to Kokoda, particularly with me, will know we normally let people have a bit of a run-up in but we just took our time and all walked together because we're a small group. So we did it, I can't remember, like 39 minutes or something like that. It wasn't super fast, but it certainly wasn't slow. Yeah. And I think, and for people who haven't been, I'm just giving them context because we love context. (laughs) And and for those that don't know, there was a bit of a thing about context (laughs) on our trip where I got bagged for using that word a lot. (laughs) But the context is that um, Imina Ridge took us about 40 minutes. But to imagine doing that eight hours a day, that's a whole other level. Yeah. And it was muddy. Um, and that was probably one of the days which was the hottest, I think. So looking back at the photos, you know, it's just a red beetroot head at the top there, you know, <laughs> the head's leaking and all sorts of things going on. So tell us about your training then. Like you're doing a lot of local trekking by this stage, yeah. but did you do anything specifically for it or what was a, just a general week, say eight, 12 weeks out, what were you doing? As I a just put kilometres on my legs. Um, I'm not one that goes to gym. I'm no athlete, that's for sure. And um, the one thing I knew I could do was put hours into my legs, kilometres into my legs and get up and down the hill. So that was the only training I did was hiking. But I did a lot of it. Uh, So you signed up on pretty late notice. Yeah. But you had thought about doing it for some time because you were going to do it with someone else. Yeah. So were you in training for it or did you start getting serious when you signed up on late notice? No, I... Um, earlier in the year, I did the Ballina to Byron walk, which is a 37-kilometre walk along the coast, really beautiful. And it was just after I'd done that walk that I decided I wanted to do Kokoda. So then I started going up Mount Cuther and working out what circuits I would do and just increasing the hours, increasing the weight in my pack and just increasing the length that you're standing because you've got to be able to walk for, you know, five, six, seven hours at a time. So knowing what you know now... Is there anything you would do differently? Is there anything you would add into your training or are you pretty happy with the way your training went? I don't think so. For me, it was everything that I needed. I was sort of a little bit worried maybe I'd overtrained um, because I didn't have any injuries and I thought if I go too hard, I might then start causing stress. But for me, it just worked out perfectly. Yeah, it's a fine line that between overtraining and being and risking injury. So often I'll get people who, who say if they're they're not getting a personal porter, so they'll be carrying about 18 kilos. So some people's brain says, well, if I'm carrying 25 or 30 in training, that's got to be better than carrying 18. But there is a tipping point where Mm, you can injure yourself, and you've got to be a little bit smart about that. So when it comes to if you've got a personal porter, you're still going to have five or six kilos with your water and food. So I normally tell people not to train any higher than 10. Yeah, and gadgets. (laughs) (laughs) Do you get an inspector gadget in New Zealand? (laughs) Go, go, gadget out. Yeah, yeah. So for those... Context for those listening, um, I didn't. I didn't label anyone over there because that's not what I do. But Rory may have well, labelled you, you as a gadget woman. <laughs> what was going past? The wheels were rolling. <laughs> so you did have a lot of gadgets. Let's talk about. Let's talk about things that you took on the track. You took a chair that was like Nana's hug. It was apparently. my Nana chair, and it was brilliant. If, if you ask me, what would I definitely take again next time? It's my Nana chair. It's only three hundred and sixty grams. It folds down, and it just hugs you when you sit in it at the end of the day. And is there a link to buy that, or have you got shares in the company? <laughs> Wait, no, seriously, what was it called? It did um, look bloody comfortable. It's called a Helinox. 
Who's H-E-L-I-N-O-X. That? I was on the website. They've got a rocking chair <laughs> <laughs> that folds down as well. I took a photo of you because um, I take a few photos of people unbeknownst to them and you were sitting inside the hut at Alola, you said Killers yeah. Village, in your chair, which is pretty low to the oh, ground. Yeah, it was but great. you did look pretty comfortable. So I'm going to put that on the um, on the podcast oh, page. Oh, you yeah. track. Um, is there anything you would take, again, knowing what you know now, is there anything extra you would take or is there anything you would leave behind that you took? I packed relatively lightly, clothes-wise. Um, I took three sets of clothes. I'd leave one behind because literally you can rinse them, wash them. You know, the beautiful Lester will dry them for you. Um, we'll come back to Lester. We'll come back to Lester. <laughs> My jungle dance partner. <laughs> Um, but I think I adhered to the pack list. I took a few gadgets, but I don't think there's anything additional I needed that I didn't have on me. Yeah. Um, it's funny you say that because those packing lists have been, you know, they're the packing lists we've used. And I think other companies use similar ones depending on what they supply and what they don't. And they've been the same for 15, 17 years that I've been trekking Kokoda. Yeah. And I've just been in the middle of putting a book together called The Modern Day Survival Guide for the Kokoda Track. And one of the things I wanted to do was an updated packing list, which would include things like battery pack charges for charging iPhones. Because yeah. for me, I use my iPhone to take photos. I don't take a camera anymore. My iPhone's pretty good. Unless it's raining really heavy, then I don't get as many photos. But I also use it to watch a bit of TV at night, like I'll mm-hmm. download Netflix or yeah. just some comfort things. Whereas years ago, you were carrying a big book or you were oh, carrying, yeah. you know, an, uh, back in the old days of an iPod and so on. So, yeah, I'm going to update that list with some things that people should include that are probably more modern. So that's something I'll do differently. The other point to that is on nearly every podcast, on nearly every time I talk to people, I say take two sets of clothes and nearly always people take extra because they just look at that and go, that can't be enough. It's just not enough. Yeah, it's in your psyche. You can't go away for eight days and wear two sets of clothes, but you can. Yeah, and we had a really wet trip um, for the most part. So uh, there was one day coming out of Brown River where I woke up to heavy rain at 3.30 in the morning. And I know if it starts raining, then you're going to cop it a bit. And I thought to myself, I can't remember the last time, at least be five or six years, where I've woken up to rain. Yeah. So normally it'll rain through the night and stop at midnight, one o'clock, and you get up in the dry. But we, and that happened to be in Brown River, whilst we're walking through the swamps crossing Brown River, <laughs> it just hammered us yeah. until about morning tea. That was as wet as you could possibly, we were soaked, it's as yeah. wet as you could be. There was no coming back from it. Yeah. And still, two sets of clothes were enough. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I had two sets that were exactly the same, and then my third set, which was different, so different garments. And when I put on that third set after wearing the first two sets for four days, it was just like, felt completely out of whack. Yeah. Although dry socks and a nice, like for me, I'll have, normally I have three shirts. They're all the same. They're all not dead yet shirts. But, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I do, after every two or three days, putting one of those on clean and fresh does feel good. Yeah. Um, but that's about all. Um, tough days. Is there any tough days, tough moments or things on the track that kind of challenge you at all? I have racked my brain because listening to your podcast, you, you know say everyone <laughs> has a bad day on the track. And I honestly did not have a bad day on the track. I think the only time um, where I you know, wasn't still pumped is I think I woke up on the morning of the third day and you said, how are you this morning? And I said, oh, I'm just feeling a bit slow, fat and old. <laughs> <laughs> was that coming out of a Lola? Uh, no, that was up at Templeton's. Oh, yeah. 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 And, and it was a bit cool that morning. it was cold, yeah. yeah. Um, and, but 
after that, had my coffee, had my breakfast, and I was right I as think, rain. I think Rory, who was on the trip with us, had that day was a bit that morning yeah. felt a bit the same too. But he came good. A couple pretty of quick his as eighteen well. wheels came off. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. So I guess that's normal. So then, what do you think the difference would be? Because I have people who are so you're forty six, same as 45. me. Forty five. Oh, forty five. All right, I'm older than you. <laughs> <laughs> That's a look of death I get down. All right, well, I'm 46. Um, so I've had people, 30, 35, relatively fit guys and girls on a fairly dry track have a struggle day or yeah, two. Yeah. What's the difference, do you think? Uh, well, Rory's first day of training was day one of the trick, so that might have a lot to do with it. We're going to talk to him in an God upcoming you, episode, Rory. hopefully. Um, and in his partner, she'd done a lot of training. Um, but, you know, guys... Some guys are just strong, naturally fit, don't need to do a lot of training. And, you know, apart from Rory's third day, he was pretty much good as gold. Um, so I can only put it down to training and just kilometres. Yeah. Now, so you didn't really have a tough day. Then tell me about your best day or your favourite memory of the track or two or three things that if you were to say to people, this is why you should do it or this is something that was amazing about it, what would it be? Well, number one, I was glad to have, you know, Everything that could happen on the track happened, so it got that full-service Kokoda treatment. We literally did, didn't we? So we, we did. had the rain, we had the walk in the rain, we had the yep. night time in the rain, we had beautiful sunny days. Yeah. We, I'm just trying to think of anything. That we had, Again, to, for people listening, we had to walk off the track, which I haven't done for years because it was so muddy, so we had to walk an extra 8Ks. Yeah. And Killer said to us, it's about an hour away. So we walk for an hour, we get to the 8K mark, <laughs> and then I said, how far is it? And he said, oh, maybe another maybe hour or two. Hour. I said, well, hang on, it was an hour when we started, we've already done that. So we literally, I can't think of anything that happened on this trip uh, that we missed out on. Yeah. And you never, you very, very rarely, I won't say never, you very rarely get that. So, yeah, that's, yeah. that's true. Well, I think um, my favourite period of time on the track was uh, was day three, I think. We were sitting up above a fogey and um, it was bucketing down and we were just playing cards underneath the shelter. And then we thought, right, we've just got to go. We started walking it stopped raining, and as we're sort of heading down to the river, we could hear all this cheering, and it was um, the grand final of the Afoki football tournament, and it yeah. was a mud bath. Yeah, actually, I will put a video of that up on the pay- on the Kokoda Track Facebook page as well, the Kokoda Track Podcast Facebook page. So, um, yeah, so we – well, first, let's go back one step. We were up at um, uh, Afoki 2, which is – called Lanumu, but for Fogey too. And it was raining that heavy that we thought, well, let's just... And we were really early. So it was like oh, 1.30, yeah. 2 o'clock in the afternoon. We were doing really good time. So we just thought, well, let's get the cards out and we'll play a bit of cards. And we played for, I don't know, 40 minutes. Yeah. And the rain just wasn't going away. So it's we thought, oh, harder. well, we'll just go out and get into it. So And then it stopped. And then when we went down, they were running the Independence... So it was PNG Independence Day. We were there on the 16th. Yeah. We were coming into that village on the 19th. So it was the last of three days of a soccer tournament where all the villagers come in. And it was between a fogey, no, yeah, a fogey, which is the village we're in. It was in their, on their pitch and they were in the grand final, which was great. And they were playing against a combined team from Naduri and Kagi. It was an absolute swimming pool. It was carnage. Yeah, and they, they were having a ball. They, they were, were having the best time ever. They and yelling and laughing. And, yeah, that was that was just hilarious to watch. Well, that's only the really second good. time that I've been into that village where there's been a big soccer tournament on. Yeah. And they all have soccer strips, the whole bit. Oh, yeah, they were but, in the Cowboys strip. Yeah. Well, one team, one team were all yellow, but like that was my 71st Kokoda track crossing. That's only the second time we've experienced a soccer match there, even though it's legendary and it's well-known. Yeah, yeah. And, 
Um, and for Shane Ridley, if he's listening, that's also the scene of the chip and chase. Oh, which right, okay. You can go back in episode on, 13, I think, for, for, the, for the epic chip and chase. Um, so favourite memory on the trail? Well, that was your favourite day. Um, favourite memory? I think um, on the morning when we left Afoga and we headed up to Mission Ridge, sun was coming up over the peaks, which was awesome, and then we headed up to Brigade Hill. And when we were at Isharava, Mission Ridge and Brigade Hill, the weather was stunning, you know, couldn't have been better. The services were just amazing. And I think that sort of thing will always stay with you as, you know, that moment in time. Actually, one thing we did have was uh, Melbourne weather in the fact that it, that was absolutely amazing. We thought this is a cracking day. Yeah. And an hour after we left um, Brigade Hill, the weather came yeah, in. Heaven's you couldn't open. see yeah. anything. The, the, <laughs> the clouds descended down. You couldn't see. It was pretty amazing. We got the whole the whole gamut. Um, let's talk about Lester, the super porter, oh. because I'm just about thinking of changing this podcast to the Lester show. It's the Lester the Appreciation Club. <laughs> because he gets mentioned a lot, and you had Lester on this trip. Um, I, did. I guess your impressions of Lester and living up to the hype of what you hear about him on the track. We've got a lot of other porters. They're all great, but they Lester gets too. a special yeah. mention. Yeah. Well, poor old Lester, for me, on day two, um, we were going over a big log, and oh, there, were, we were, there was another group coming the way and the advanced porters were there. So they're like four porters to my left-hand side within a metre, Lester behind me. I got up on the log and my feet just came out under me and I hit the deck. Luckily it was mud, so it was soft. <laughs> and um, poor Lester, he was horrified. And one of the guides from the other outfit picked up this big stick and hit him over the back with it and started yelling at him. It was like, oh, Lester, I'm so sorry. <laughs> For the rest of the trip, he was no more than probably a metre or two away from me. And, you know, we're going up or down, you know. He was there, and whether I needed his hand or not, I took it. And it was just like we were doing this waltz through the jungle, and he would just put his <laughs> hand out. And it, oh, and he was wonderful. Oh, and... Yeah. And I should say, but when you say guides, it was actually one of the locals coming the other way. So it wasn't like an Aussie guide or anything yeah, doing that. Yeah. And and look, I think it was more in jest and fun with him, but yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. they rib each other when something goes wrong. And then you were a bit worried he was ostracised oh, because so you're sorry. standing away from yeah. him. That's just Lester is like that. And, when we um, stopped for a break, I cleaned myself up so it didn't look like I'd fallen over. <laughs> <laughs> but you didn't hurt yourself? No, 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 it was mud. It Did was you just... fall over any other time? Um, no. I, I don't think M fell over at I all. I had my you? head. I don't know, like for how wet it was, I thought we are going to have a lot of carnage out here, as in it's really slippery. Yeah, Uh, up and down. I did feel it, you know, at different times, a tweak on my thigh or my calf or anything, but because your terrain changes, you can then work a different group of muscles, so you just got to be extra careful and really make use of your pole and your porter. The Kokoda Track Podcast, hosted by former soldier Glenn Azar. So what do you think, this is a big thing for me because I'm very big on personal development and I believe adventure is about personal development, who we become. So the person you are at the start of something like Kokoda to who you are at the end is a different person. What what lessons do you take out of the Kokoda track that are going to be beneficial to your life going forward, do you think? Um, I think it's it's really that whole sort of piece around living in the moment and you know taking in the surroundings enjoying the people that you're with and really focusing on who's in front of you, what's around you, as opposed to I'll, I'll get a photo and post it so it looks like this. It's, um, you know, it's real life and we live in a real world and it's too easy to get sidetracked. And when you're out in the jungle, 
Um, life is simple. Life is good. I'd love to get some thoughts on day one or two. You're really immersed in the experience still, and you think, geez, we've got ages to go. And then all of a sudden, it's day seven. Yeah, it's over. And it's day eight, and you're walking off the track. Some thoughts around that. Um, and it does. It happens, bang, it's finished. So when we were walking out, um, I wasn't sad at all because I loved it. And so I didn't leave thinking, oh, I don't want to go home. I'm sad. It was like, oh, it really um, made me think I am on the right track. The way I live and the way I um, engage with people, my friends and my family, um, that's what's important to me and being out on the track. And you see, you know, the porters and their villages and their friends and their family, just their delight when they see them. And, you know, even when the the guy porters are passing each other they're touching hands and stuff so it was it's really about um embracing everything that's in front of you and important to you and and living and breathing it yeah absolutely so what's your next big adventure or challenge have you got something on the horizon now for you that's the other thing you come home and then all of a sudden you go wow i've been working towards that for a little while now it's done um and people can go into a bit of what we call the kokoda blues kind of like oh what your training doesn't have as much purpose um, so what is it for you? What's the next little um, I think it's going to be uh, Black Cat oh, next really? year. Yeah, yeah right. um, That's an adventure. Yeah, I'm really keen to give that a crack. And um, I'm also going to do the Kokoda Challenge down on the Gold Coast next year in July. All right, so I'll talk about two things there. One, I got asked every year for so many years, come and do the Kokoda Challenge. And I used to say to people, I do the real Kokoda all the time. Why would I do that? Uh, and it didn't always fit in anyway, but it didn't make sense to me. And then two, three years ago, a mate of mine, Paul Emerson from Gatton, who'd done Kokoda with me, and he said to me, mate, we've got a team going in. It was two weeks' notice. We've got a team going in the Kokoda Challenge. One of the guys is injured. any chance you could fill in? And I had time off, so I said, okay, I'll do it. By the end of that week... There's not many people that could say that with two weeks' notice. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we weren't setting any records, but by the end of that week, out of his team of four, three of them had dropped out, including him with injuries. So I had to find extra people. I found Sammy Dunk, who's one of my good friends and trek leaders who's also been on the podcast, and a young friend of mine, Shannon, who's, um, you know, I think she was 17 or 18 at the time, and I had trained her in my gym in Toowoomba. She's a competitive power athlete so sprinter shot putter discus and i yeah. trained her since she was like 11 years old so it's certainly not an endurance athlete so we filled in and there was one guy on the team who we didn't even know <laughs> we did it and I, I was amazed by have you done it before no but i know people that have done it and i've done a bit of research right of well i was amazed by all this empowerment that i was feeling yeah. around going into camps at 11 o'clock at night and one o'clock in the morning and seeing mums and dads coming in and little kids who are like sitting out with support crews, yeah. six, seven, eight-year-old kids, so excited to see mum and dad coming in. And I thought, what a great example to set. And then when you got into, like we did it, we certainly didn't set any records. People are doing like 11 hours and stuff. We did like 28 yeah, or man. 29 hours. And when we got in, they have, I think the radio station on the Gold Coast is is hot tomato or something tomato <laughs> fm and they kind of and they have music playing yeah. and they have their announcers talk and they announce every single person through whether you're doing it in 11 hours or in or in 34 hours celebrating them yeah it was such a cool environment to be a part of yeah, yeah. you and will it's love totally it totally different to the <clears throat> it's you know it shares the same name and some of the same terrain but yeah different focus you know it's that yeah. whole all in one go don't stop keep going for it is hard um, I will challenge people. I regularly get people go, oh, it's just the same as the real Kokoda. People haven't been there, and it's not. And I'm, the reason I say that is I know very few people who could do the real Kokoda. Well, I don't know anyone who could do it in 11 hours. The record for the locals is 17 and a half. 
Um, one of my best mates, Ricky Dummigan, who's an ex-commando PDI, one of the fittest guys I know, did it in 30 hours and nearly killed him. The real cocoa oh, yeah. nearly killed himself. Yeah. And again, he's been on the show. So I don't know anyone that could... You, you go to the Kokoda track and there are thousands or hundreds of people doing it in under 30 hours. So it's not the same, but it is bloody hard mm. to do in a 24-hour or a 30-whatever people are doing it. I think 39 is a cutoff, but you know, it is hard. Um, the other thing I was going to talk about was... What was the other... Ch- oh, the Black Cat. So people listening wouldn't know much about Black Cat, I guess. It's only just been reopened. But Black Cat is a track that leads... It's north of Kokoda. So after the Japanese failed there, they tried to move up and come through this other track. They heard about the Black Cat track. It was a. It didn't last long. They were pretty depleted. We were really depleted too after Kokoda. But where it's special is it's the first time Australia used special forces on the ground. So we used commandos. That was pre-us having the SAS or any of that sort of stuff. So... That in itself is a pretty amazing history. Mm-hmm. As far as you read stuff and they go, there's a guy that wrote a story for Lonely Planet. And he, if you Google it, he'll say, you have to be, it's harder than Kokoda and you have to be a commander or a massacre to do it. And I don't know, I think he never went there. <laughs> he because, probably didn't. <laughs> yeah, and Lonely Planet do have a bit of history there. But it's not nowhere near as hard as Kokoda, but it's more adventurous. Yeah. As in, you walk across these massive, big river crossings, carrying a bag above your head, and it's yeah, it's there are a lot more leeches and stuff like that. Yeah. Like the challenges of uh, of New Guinea, there are villages that don't see people. So in its biggest year, it did three hundred people across that track, and on average is about a hundred, and it hasn't been open for three years due to an incident that happened yeah, a few years yeah. ago. So it'll be four years by the time we we are reopening it next year, and it's taken a lot of years to get that done, but. Um, the locals aren't as westernised as they had become along Kokoda pre-GFC. So 2008, 2009, on Kokoda, there were like 9,500 people across the track. Yeah. Now yeah. it's back down around that three, three and a half, which is very manageable. The the locals are a little bit westernised, but not over the top. You know, a little yeah. bit of coke and twisties and stuff here. You'll get none of that out on the Black Cat. So it's And you're camping right in the villages like you used to do on Kokoda. There never yeah. used to be all the huts set up for trekkers and all that now. So your, so your nana's hug chair will need to come out for that one. <laughs> <laughs> we might have to issue them to everyone. So. Um, anything you would advise people to bring based off your experience now? I've got one off the top of my head, but let's see where you go first. Nana chair? <laughs> also you can blow up Matt. Oh, yeah. Because well, well, you and I've I had one. one. Of those, yeah. That's my new normal. Rory and Em didn't have one. And I wasn't a believer in the blow-up mat for a lot of years, and I finally got one last year, and it's the most amazing thing ever. They're, I don't know, they're like 120 bucks or whatever. I can't remember yeah. what they cost. And they're light as anything. Oh, but they're incredible. It's amazing the difference of sleep you can get from a two- or three-centimetre mat. Oh, absolutely. Um, and that extra few millimetres is just – you can sleep a lot easier. I mean, I didn't go out there expecting 1,000-thread sheets or anything, <laughs> you know. So, I mean – Good. <laughs> You're not going to sleep that great, but you do sleep better. At least you've got that comfort level. And, you know, I do like a bit of comfort in my old age. Don't we all? <laughs> Wait till you get to 46. <laughs> hey, um, people listening to this podcast are listening for two reasons. One, they've been, so they want to really live an experience through other people, which is great. Or two, they're thinking about going. So for those people thinking about going, what, what are your thoughts on that? What, what would you say to them? Oh, 100% sign up. For sure. Um, I'd go back in a heartbeat. But for me, it was like a unicorn trip, just got the best of everything. Yeah. But I think sign up, start walking and count down the days. It's just great on so many levels. 
So I'm going to give a quick shout out to Maxine Brown, who I talked to you about before we went on air. Yeah. So Maxine is from a place called Yakamia. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that right, but it's in Albany in West Australia. And she actually sent an email through to Corey, who does our admin, and said, I'm going to take the advice of everyone on the podcast and just sign up and do it. I've got yeah. nine months. I'm freaking out, but that's it. I'm locked in. And I kind of think that's the idea is to just say, you know what? Yeah. Don't think too hard. Yeah, and if you ask too many people who've been and if you listen to all the horror stories, you'll find them. And, yeah, it can be tough. But is it doable? Of course it is. Yeah. And it gives you something to keep accountable. So, um, so Maxine, we'll be seeing you in June next year. Um, you're locked in now. You can't get away. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I agree. I think people just have to sign up and do it. I've had people five and ten years have sort of always wanted to do that. And yeah. then it tips into... <laughs> I wish I was able to, but I'm not physically capable anymore. And I think that's, and that will happen to all of us at some point, I'm sure. I mean, I've taken, you know, people in their 70s across the track. Yeah. Uh, but someone in their 70s can be very different to someone else in their 70s. Yeah. So, yeah, for me, I would just hate to get to the end of or, or whatever that p- phase of life is where you don't have the same physical capacity and you think back to, geez, I was actually pretty capable at 40. Yeah. Yet I thought I was old, but you yeah. weren't. And yeah. you don't have to be an athlete. You don't have to be a gym bunny. You just need to be able to walk, you know, 20 Ks. And you, you keep on doing that every yeah. day. And take the breaks when you need them. That's yeah. the other thing is... People worry it didn't happen in our group. You were all pretty fit and similar fitness levels. Everyone moved at the same pace. But often in a group, there'll be one or two or more people who are a fair way behind the rest of the group, half an hour or and we stop regularly. For them, they can feel under pressure. Oh, I'm slowing everyone down. I'm always the last one in. But the truth is the people at the other end don't care. No, it's not a race. Yeah, they're not worried. They're not not sitting there thinking, oh, why are we waiting for this person? They're just enjoying the break. Um, So I think people put that pressure and stress on themselves. Having said that, again, going back to training, my advice is always to train as best you can so you know you're as well prepared as possible to enjoy the experience and not look down at your feet going, how do I get through this next hour or this next day? Get into camp, go to sleep. Um, You know, you want to chat and talk and laugh and take the mickey out of everyone. You know, it's good fun. I I don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) But you do. It's a Kiwi thing. (laughs) Um, any final thoughts for people listening or any final thoughts just on your overall experience? Um, I think I would, I think the most excited I was, I think, was when I signed up and then you're like, I've done it, I'm going, and then you've got all that time to train. And so if you're wavering, you know, you just need to sign up and you've got that motivation, you've got that excitement because you're really going. You've set a deadline. Yeah, absolutely, and you've committed to it. Yeah. And tell everyone you know. Posted on social media. Keeps you honest. <laughs> Lisa, thanks for coming in and chatting Kokoda. No problem. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Kokoda Track Podcast. To get in touch or stay up to date, go to Kokoda Track Podcast on Facebook or email glenn at adventureprofessionals.com.au. Don't forget to subscribe and share with your friends. Let's keep the spirit and the stories of Kokoda and the PNG people alive.